Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hi everyone, my name is Sophie Cunningham and I'm your host today and I'd like to welcome you to the unceded lands of the Gadigal Nation and I pay my respects to any elders past, present or future in the room. Well, not just elders, actually, <laughs> juniors also. Um, we're, we're going to talk about the title of this um, session because, well, I have some ambivalence about it, but I won't, we won't start on that note. I would like to introduce um, Anne Casey Hardy and Fiona Kelly McGregor. Anne is an award-winning fiction writer who lives and writes in Melbourne's West on Bunurong land. Cautionary Tales for Excitable Girls was published by Scribner in September 2022, and it's her first book. Fiona Kelly McGregor is a multidisciplinary writer, artist, and critic based on the unceded lands of Gadigal and the Aurora Nation. Her latest novel, Iris, has been longlisted for the Stella Prize, shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Award, and longlisted for the Miles Franklin Award. Her essay collection, Buried Not Dead, was published in 2021 and spans almost three decades of McGregor's um, critical writing. And other books include her novel, Indelible Ink, which personally I found quite inspirational, Fiona, with my... <laughs> and um, Strange Museums, Chemical Palace, Suck My Toes and No Pair. And in fact, I published the first three books, of, and that's how Fiona and I um, met, back in the 90s. We've been colleagues and friends for a very long time. I wanted Fiona and Anne to actually describe, tell us a little bit about the book, both, um, and you can interpret that however you like, both describing a little bit what it's about, but if you want to give us any backstory, that would be fine too. Anne, I'll start with you. Okay. Um, Cautionary Tales for Excitable Girls is a collection of short stories. Um, there's 18 stories. Um, they're mostly written in the first person and they are the voices of women and girls who are seeking agency and power in lives where that's difficult. But um, they're incredibly wily and they're not interested in cautionary tales. So it's got an ironic title. <laughs> so this book is actually set on Gadigal country, apart from some um, back flashes to Glen Innes and Hay, where Iris Weber, who is the petty criminal on whom this story is based, grew up and was born. And uh, it's, it's taken from primary sources in the archives, but they were very scant. And so this is very much a work of um, a novel, uh, a work of art, a work of craft, an imaginary story. Thank you. So first of all, I did want to actually just address the question of, um, while this is a <laughs> panel in praise of, uh, certainly my experience of reading both these books was not to think that the women were difficult. <laughs> my experience was that women were navigating a range of complex and difficult situations and behaving appropriately. So I don't know if either of you have anything you want to say about that or any comment you want to make before we talk more specifically about your work. Well, I'm really interested in being difficult. It's a, <laughs> that's why I want to write about it. Every single woman or girl in 
in every story is doing something slightly shady um, that she's not supposed to be doing. But that just reflects all the different rules about what women and girls are supposed to be doing. And I take difficult to mean non-compliant, um, but the, it's a very gendered term, I think, and difficult. There are difficult women and difficult children, but you just don't hear men call difficult. So in being non-compliant, the, um, the only way to reach your potential is to be difficult. Indeed, if you reach your potential, you possibly are then, by definition, difficult. Yes, and yeah. allowed to be difficult. <laughs> I never would have framed my character in no. that way, and so this is, yeah, it's just the title of the panel. Um, but this, this is set 1932 to 1937, and so this is uh, in a context of tremendous poverty and at a time when women couldn't open a bank account, um, actually maybe till the 60s or 70s, unless it was in their husband's name, couldn't go into public bars until the 1970s. Um, homosexuality was illegal. Of course, the law was applied to men, but if uh, female queer women were persecuted, there's a lot of documentary evidence of that. And by the police, hounded was the jail or the madhouse. And so it's the context, I fully agree, that's difficult for, for women to survive in, yeah. In fact, as an extension of that idea about the context being difficult, I felt often um, reading Iris just extreme, the ways in which the system is rigged and indeed in, in some of your star stories too, Anne, I'm thinking of, I don't remember the name of the story about the tarot card reader. The Starry Night. The Starry Night, which is a really beautiful story, but the, the sense that the system is rigged. It's rigged, rigged against you if you're poor, if you're a woman, if you're vulnerable. And I wanted to talk... One of the things that struck me is consistently unfair, and one of the things that was really um, fascinating for me about Iris as a person was her busking and her delight in making music. Could you talk a little bit about, well, this idea of the system being rigged, but also tell us a bit about Iris and her accordion? Well, that's, that's one of the things that comes from the public record, that she made a living playing the accordion. The other thing is that there, the dole available then was the susso, and again, you had to have, you had to sign on under your husband's name. So Iris has left her husband by the time this book takes place, and she's trying to make her way on her own. The busking was a really great opportunity for me to get into the music because I'm an ex-musician and so the, there's music that kind of drives the narrative. And the other thing that's interesting about it is that it takes her into a public place. And of course, women's lives have been defined mostly by the domestic space or the private spaces because you know we haven't had access to public spaces. And so she's very much on the street, making a living on the street, and it's an opportunity for me to observe the street, and it makes her more vulnerable once again. And also the other thing about the busking is that under the law, it was illegal. I mean, today I'm pretty sure that you need a, um, a license to busk, and back then what the police could bust you for was uh, a clause un under the vagrancy clause. However, when you pass it down, you really needed to be singing songs that contained obscene material. And there's no evidence that Iris was doing that, but she was um, 
it was the clause and the law under which the police were able to really pursue and start jailing her as time went on in Sydney and her reputation for other notorious things grew. Yeah. And indeed which, those sort of laws as a way of, generic laws as a way of con containing people continue today and I know that you Absolutely, poverty. And also the, the people who suffer the most under those laws are Indigenous people and the laws, the, the drug laws which are probably having the most deleterious effect in that sense. Strip search in New South Wales anyway, yeah. And in the, the Starry Night, um, the story is actually about a lot of things, but it, it, there is also this, um, it's partly about a woman's engagement with the gig economy, which I found kind of fabulous and extraordinary. She um, ends up with this writing star signs for a kind of very shady character. And I, can you talk a little bit about what your response to my statement that the system is rigged, but also that particular story and the kind of what was going on for her. Because she really got into the, into the, she was a clear, a lot of your characters actually are right, are sort of wordsmiths, even if they don't, um, well, they sort of, even if they're not writers. And this job gives her a chance to be a writer. That particular story is distinctive because it's the only one written in the third person. Um, and it didn't work in the first person I tried it. But she, um, the story's about limerence, about being in love with someone who doesn't love you. And in fact, the person she's in love with, who she thinks about almost constantly, never appears in the story, except in her dreams. Um, and she's um, really fixated on altering her appearance with, you, you know, piles of makeup and wearing clothes that he used to like. Um, none of the other characters care about those sort of things. So she's not happy with herself and she's pining for something that's impossible um, and she can't get a job, that, you know, that is any kind of reputable job, but she does get a job um, working for a fake scam charity um, and they, they want to um, move out of drug support into writing um, astrology, you know, for big bucks. And she applies for the job um, and she gets the job, but she do, still doesn't know what she's supposed to be doing. But she says, but it's good news she had the job. <laughs> One of the things actually about when you were talking, I was thinking that this is one of several, many stories in, in the collection um, that one of the ways in which the system is, well, heterosexuality is rigged. There's no way, it's, it's very hard to win at it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the kind of expectations of, of women in heterosexual relationships, and you both have queer characters, or that's how we would describe them today. And while, in fact, the, the writing about um, Iris and Maisie's relationship is incredibly sexy and just fantastic, but... I also read the Iris um, choosing to be with a woman partly as a way of resisting those kind of relationships. Relationships were about constraint, abuse and violence where there was a kind of inbuilt hierarchy and that um, heterosexuality is really a continuation of this idea that really being considered difficult is really just an insistence on resist, um, resisting stereotypes and that queer sexuality is really a part of trying to escape those restraints? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I think that 
what what unfolds without wanting to spoil the story for everybody isn't an idealised escape from that, even if it might seem to be initially. Um, because, of course, if you were living a queer relationship in those days, you had to hide, and you had to hide even from, um, you know, you're on the margins of the margins, essentially. So there is no refuge. There is a nightclub in the book where they go, which is based on an actual club called Black Aiders, um, which in gay oral history, it was a place for men. And I've interspersed a bit of female activity there. And that would be really the only place where these two women would feel like they could um, express being together. So it might start off like that, but I think it doesn't end up like that and it can't because there is no space in society for it. And the other thing is that um, what happens interpersonally is, is contains everything that happens to you socially. And so if two women get together, they're, they're actually full of all the damage that's happened to them from, from being women, and that can play out in a relationship. So it's not an ideal escape, unfortunately. Yes, no, yeah, it did, it did really strike me, though, yeah. um, as soon as Maisie and Iris teamed up, there was a, just a different energy. There was friendship. There mm. was a partner in crime. They could go out together and just really have fun. Um, in the midst of all the poverty and abjectness, there was the female bond of friendship, which is what I write about. Two women together or two girls together can do about 10 times as much damage as anyone on their own. <laughs> <laughs> but um, also, though, I'm thinking um, the story is that laying low... What, um, in disguise, laying low. In disguise, low. laying low uh, is... Um, is a story in which a woman is a criminal and she is working for a, a man who is also her lover. Am I reading that correctly? And then sort of she well, manages to... Well, they're not officially boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah. But, they um, just have sex. <laughs> subver sub subverting that idea of... Um, but it is actually in a more contemporary time. Anyway, can you talk about that story? I wrote that story for my sister because she was feeling a bit down and it made her really happy. But um, it's about uh, a woman who's a, a, she's kind of getting bossed around by a cr her criminal boyfriend. He gives her a, a wad of money and she's supposed to organise a getaway for them, you know. But instead, she spends the money and she has a great time. She rings up her sister. She's in an alienated family and her sister gets on the first plane and they just spend five days watching videos, um, nostalgic videos from their childhood. And every time, every few days, they put on wigs and sunglasses, pink wigs, so that they're in disguise and they're not, um, and go out and buy everything they want from the shops and just burn through the money with just incredible glee, counting down to the time when the boyfriend's going to come back um, and there's going to be a reckoning. But um, she says, um, I was smarter than Jimmy because he never would know that I could turn the tables if I had to. And she does. She figures it out. She drives off in the end with all her wigs and a cat in a basket and videos and bows and Jimmy's just unconscious in the back room <laughs> with his hands and feet tied with um, shoelaces. Um, but she leaves him a glass of water on the bedside table. <laughs> it is, um, yes, it, it, it is, um, 
It is very pleasurable, that's true. <laughs> but, but I am actually thinking about what you were just saying, Fiona, and you are right that um, there is some that in some ways there are even more constraints associated with being homosexual women at that time, as in that your life gets kind of hemmed in. There's nowhere to go. In yeah. particular ways. Yeah. And, but Iris, I think, was so capable of being herself that she could allow herself to, she could, didn't mind as much about being seen as a, as a woman who was in love with a woman, whereas Maisie was much more, always had to be seen to have a man, man by her, her side. And that were kind of performing particular theatre, if you like. Yeah, I mean, that's what the pressure is. And there's also, um, people might know the, the famous crims from the time, Kately and Tilly Devine and their cameos in this book. And I took the opportunity to observe um, how they managed to get the power that they got. And one of the things, and I'm observing their um, economic operation through the eyes of Iris, because Kate Lee started her first big beer house five minutes walk up the road from Iris. Again, this is what's in the archives. And so I imagined Iris going to work for Kate because nearly everybody would have been under her economic power in that part of Surrey Hills at the time. And one thing that is pretty clear is that those women... Um, in becoming the crime bosses that they became, actually needed to manage the men. They needed to, they needed men as their muscle. They needed to manage uh, whatever threat that the men paid. The other thing about who really had the most power at the time is that there was a third gangster who really has gone under the radar, Phil Jeffs, or his nickname in racist parlance of the time, Phil the Jew Jeffs. And he's observed in there as well. And he uh, was not the media whore that Tilly and Kate were. And I'm not using the word whore as a pejorative, of course. It's um, part of my community. But because he wasn't, he really went under the radar. And yet he really accrued a lot of wealth. And another reason that he's not mentioned a lot is that he died in 1945. And he would have had to have been managed um, along with all of the other men. And those men were often, well, their husbands or their lovers who would double as their kind of muscle, uh, all of the men that they employed. I still think it's a really amazing achievement, but I don't think necessarily that the fact that the crime bosses were women means that women by extension, you know, had a lot of power. It's a bit like, you know, Obama being president of the States doesn't mean that Afro-Americans are through to equality, you know, it's that kind of thing. Uh, I wanted to, um, a couple of questions that's been off from that, but one is, is the issue of violence and the violence of the world that um, all the women who pay for these books um, are managing. And so I wanted you to talk about both the way you write about it and people's in the world of the novel, people's reaction to violence when it's the women who are being violent, even if, if that violence is, can be characterised as self-defence, and the law's reaction to women who are violent, and I suppose your own feelings about, about that subject. I mean, the, the kind of, the, the, the sim, there's a simmering sense of violence or fear, I was going to say fear of violence, it's not necessarily a fear of violence because to some extent that 
characters learn to live with it and not think about it constantly, but there is always a sense it's of always there. menace. So the New Year's Eve is a shockingly, well, it's a, sorry, I mean, it's not shockingly violent, but it is a story about, about the potential for violence. Yeah, and there is one similarity to Iris in it. Um, that's just a story about Year 9 um, kids who have a bonfire on New Year's Eve down at the creek. And um, for me, the creek is just a very menacing place in the background. But the girls aren't allowed to go to start with, so they're already disadvantaged when they do. Um, and they get around the fire, and the fire gets bigger and bigger, and they're drinking, um, and there's all sorts of nefarious stuff happening in the bush around them. Um, and the girl who's, who's telling the story um, is just so nervous about the boy who's sitting next to her, the boy who's sitting across from her, the rustling behind her, the bushes. Um, but they're telling ghost stories. Um, and um, someone there tells a ghost story and she laughs at him. Um, and he just glares at her. You think that's the end of that. But right at the end of the story, when she's leaving, he trips her and um, lifts up this giant block of stone and just brings it down right next to her head. And she said, he didn't kill me because he was only joking, you know. <laughs> but that was his revenge for her laughing at him, saying something that wasn't even funny, you know. The disparity is huge. And um, yes, laughing at men is probably the most dangerous thing a woman can do in some society. Not yeah. the men I know. Um, we're afraid of being killed and they're afraid of being laughed at. Yes. Isn't that the adage? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, mm. Fiona, in, with Iris, it's for kind of some context about vi Iris's violence, is it true that Iris, um, in, over time, and, and, and there is to be a second book which will cover more of Iris's experiences in the court system and, when, and with police, but she became famous for her capacity to manage... Um, legal or her, her test making, giving testimony in court, and those kind of things. Yeah, she did. She she defended herself in court in the first serious court case that she had in 1932 in Hay, and uh, and then she did have criminal lawyers. There are there are two more cases. Well, in, that are covered in this book from 1932 to 37, and. Mm -hmm. Two of the most prominent criminal lawyers of the day acted for her, um, and one of them went on to act for her again later in the 40s, and she sacked him, and she took over the defence in court. So she was... Uh, she did um, commit violent crimes, and she ended up with this reputation of being really violent, and I think it's interesting how it's sort of been the most dominant... Um, view of her, whereas going back to the celebrity crims, they probably, according to the public record, did commit more crimes of violence, but they were not so tarnished by that as Iris was, because Iris was queer, I think. I mean, that whole trope of the monstrous female is 
way stronger if the woman is queer, and that exists to this day. And, I mean, we're talking also about the way the media is telling the stories, and people might remember the case of the, the lesbian vampires in Brisbane, I think, in the 1980s. And um, it does still come up. And the other thing about the violence is that in the context of poverty, it's, and also in the context of um, the slums of inner Sydney, it's really an everyday language. And I read a lot of literature from the time and there are three things that really struck me, alcoholism, rotten teeth, and domestic violence. And so of course the worst violence is going on in the family homes as happens today. And um, there is actually one other thing that I thought of that, I, that I've been watching Succession probably like everybody else in this room. And because I knew that, you know, I would be asked about this and because it's been, it's, it's still a framing phrase for Iris Webber. And, I, and I've been thinking what, while I watch Succession, my God, I can't watch more than two episodes at once because I feel like I've just watched Goodfellas, you know, and people are just getting baseball bats swung into their heads. It's verbal violence. Exactly. Yeah. And psychological violence and the abuse and the, the power is just is almost un, kind of inconceivable to, to most people on earth in the way it's wielded. And so violence is really something that exists across every tier of society and people, the people who are blamed for it do tend to be not necessarily the people who are committing the most. And so she'd be one of them, <laughs> I think. Anyway, yeah. Would um, women get... Um harsher or lesser sentences. So the first crime, am I right, that she's, which is very early on in the book, so it's not a spoiler, is she shoots her husband in... He's not the one she shoots in the buttocks, is she? Is yeah, he? we've just spotted... But that's OK. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I won't say who's Hopefully you'll read further than by the time we <laughs> reach that point. But, it, yeah, it's funny to... There, there is a kind of... Sexism can work in a woman's favour because the, the fairer sex um, could not possibly be conceived of as inflicting, um, you know, pain or wounding or anything on a man. And so men... When men were attacked um, by women, they, they, usually, they usually wouldn't say because they would be too ashamed. They'd say, oh, no, some bloke, some bloke shot me in James Street and I didn't see him. He looked, you know, he was tall and I couldn't see his face and, you know, they would not give it away. And often it, it, often it was domestic violence the other way. It would be a woman like Nellie Cameron. They all did it. Tilly, Kate, Nellie Cameron all took up. Um, fists, arms, whatever, against their men. And it's interesting going back to this question of... Knives. Knives, razors, whatever, was at hand. Um, so Self-defence might not be something that is in the moment to in response to a particular incident. It might be... I mean, we could possibly build a good case. I mean, this has happened, actually, with women who... Women who um, attack or kill their husbands... In, in more sophisticated recent legal procedure, the, the case for self-defence has been built as, as a, an accrual over time because those women usually commit their crimes in a premeditated way. They usually have to get their husbands when they're asleep because there's no way that they could get them when they're awake. And to that extent, it might appear to be more cold-blooded or not in self-defence, but it's really a kind of response to 
a lifetime of receiving abuse and but violence. But they do go to jail for it. They, they do go to jail, just... exactly. And, I'm, and I think that the ones who, yeah, we, we there are so many stories we don't even know about this. And, yeah. of course, dead you and gone as well. You only fight back if it's in the moment. Uh, yeah, and even then... bigger than you, stronger than you. Yeah, you don't... More it's, ferocious. Yeah, it's not, it's not really a fair fight, so... Okay, one um, is I think will probably be clear if, if for those of you because know, you're listening to our conversation. Both books are incredibly atmospheric and one of the things that gives this wonderful atmosphere is is the place, the places that hold these um, stories. Um, for in, in Iris, it's Surrey Hills in the 1930s. In Anne's stories, I was often transported to very particular landscapes that I know. There's a story called The Merry Creek um, and New Year's Eve, which we've talked about, just made me think of so many, you know, horrendous 70s kind of teenage parties in, in the country, which sort of fuel. And actually, so, um, I was saying this to Anne in the green room at time, I found myself thinking of puberty blues. The tone is very different, but... Um, just that capacity to really capture the experience of a time that, in a way, and I just want to actually pay my respects to Gabrielle Carey. Yeah. Because um, her, her loss Absolutely. is considerable. Yeah. Um, but what, so I wanted to, um, I wanted to ask you both about place and the way it holds memory. Like, the, and this relates to, um, in a way, how you write fiction. How do you spin fiction out of either memory or research? What is it about the place that holds these stories? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Sydney cider born and bred and I, um, I wrote an essay about Surrey Hills, which is the last essay in my book, Buried Not Dead, which kind of segues into this material because although I've never lived in Surrey Hills, well, I kind of semi-lived there when um, a girlfriend of mine that I, had a, that I was with for seven years, I used to stay at her warehouse a lot when I lived on the South Coast. So I've got extensive memories and um, of Surrey Hills going back all, all my adult life back to the 1980s. Now I'm living here in Redfern. I, I walked down to Surrey Hills frequently while I was writing this book, um, day and night, took photos and then on top of my research of the place and I have researched Sydney going back to invasion and whatever we can know geologically and of this place before it was changed by the metropolis. And so I do have a really, a really layered sense of Sydney and applying the history of Surrey Hills now is important because everything has become so gentrified. Um, and I think that literature is in a good position to do that. And once you do know what went on in these places, your experience of, of just walking down the street is so much richer, I think, and, and gets rid of any kind of romance and um, the comfort that we have now is, in, is unbelievable and it's not going to last because of climate change. So if this conversation is recorded, I think that in 50 or 100 years, it's really not going to be, we're in kind of peak comfort now, I think. I mean, people didn't have... Iris lived in a in a house that um, had no running water, no electricity. There was a tap in what was called the common yard, which was often one yard would serve three or four houses in a terrace. And when I say terrace, it's not necessarily a big Victorian one. Some of the Edwardian ones, the houses were much smaller and narrower. And that tap would be 
cold, rusty water. You couldn't necessarily drink it. There were no, there was no sewerage. The building of the um, sewerage system was was happening at that time, but it was not being houses at the bottom of the hill, and Woolamaloo, Glebe, Surrey Hills were not the ones to be serviced. And so, that kind of experience in existence in Sydney is so different, so different to now. It's really quite incredible to contemplate. Yeah. So, Anne, with, you, well, you can answer this question however you like, but I, I am particularly interested to know about the story, the, the Mary Creek story, because it just felt so like the Mary <laughs> Creek. Yep. Well, I sometimes think I wrote the whole book so that I could write the story that called the Mary Creek, which um, I grew up in the northern suburbs of Melbourne where the creek runs through, um, but when I was in primary school, um, a boy was murdered by a pedophile who, um, who lived in the presbytery, but nobody knew that. Um, and the police didn't investigate the case, even though he was 12, because there were signs of homosexual activity. So I was in primary school, I mean, grade one, grade two, and I was horrified by the death, but no one would talk about it. And we weren't allowed to talk about it. We weren't allowed to talk about it to each other. And the pedophile called Bert worked at the school and roamed around the school every day, basically making sure that nobody talked about it. <laughs> Meanwhile, picking out his next victim. So, I mean, that's a really scary place to was come it, from. Was this a school that you were going yeah, to? Yeah, my primary school, St Matthews. Uh, um, Catholic primary school? Yeah, and so as I grew older, apart from the fact that we weren't allowed to go to the creek, um, although my brothers went there and had and a, a life of great freedom and natural beauty. Um, in my mind, there was always a place, which is where the boy's body was left, that I just think of as the Badlands. And that came to symbolise in my mind just the dark space where there's fear and um, dread and um, no, way, no way to find an answer. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm interested in that fear as well, and I try to explore it in my books because I think women do, um, are taught to be scared, you know, not to go out at night, not to walk down alleys, not to get off the train, not to smile, not to, or to smile but don't smile too much, and on and on and on. So we carry with us this visceral potential for fear at any time. Um, and it's a kind of psychic fear. Mm. So, yeah, and uh, I, love, um, I love atmosphere in the way that it's gothic. So for me, it's like when I think about that darkness and that place and my childhood confusion, um, it's a really rich vein of um, something that's really interesting to me. One of the interesting things about what you say, though, is it... Though clearly, when you as you work out what is going on, when you read the story, the story feels more about love than fear. The the um, narrator um, just feels kinship and warmth and love for this poor boy. Or well, that's sort of how I read it. So even though it's obviously about the visceral nature, you can't help but think. No, about it was my great yearning to comfort that child. 
um, mm. which yeah. is impossible in life, but possible in fiction. So a ghost of myself went back to the past to comfort him. That's where the love is. Also, I don't know if this is... I mean, I know Mary Creek from now, so Mary Creek's a gentrified part of Melbourne, right? And That's what I expected a, to get lynched about writing that story and calling it the Mary Creek. But well, it's, bits it's, of it are, but bits of it are still not. Depends where you are. Okay, so it's a long... From, yes, it's, long it's maybe yeah. like Cook's River or something. Mm, yeah. yeah. Because um, one of the things... Because a lot of your stories do go back through the decades, but they have this timeless quality. This is one of the things that's so great about Anne's stories as that they're time-marked, but they're also quite timeless and magical. Is And going back also to the 1930s, is the lack of lighting in the streets mm. and um, the roughness of these, you know, in, in like Surrey Hills, as in probably around Mary Creek, it would have been like dirt paths, no lighting, um, really good reasons to be afraid. And, of course, men would have been afraid too, not in the yeah, same way, but... Um, yeah, I just thought of that as well because when I was going off on a lot of my night perambulations around Surrey Hills and I was taking photos, um, it was actually hard sometimes to get a decent photo because the street lighting was so bright, you know, and very much not what it used to be like in those alleyways. Um, just sort of an extension of that question is, which relates to atmosphere and memory and place is that the idea of haunting. Mm-hmm. I'm um, into it. Yeah, um, you, there are literally kind of a sense of characters being haunted or of, of ghosts in, in your work, Anne, but you both... I, well, I wanted you to talk about um, whether the, the writing of these kind of stories does feel like a kind of... that you are being haunted by stories of the past and, and, and memories and it's a way of kind of um, working with that sense of... I'm trying to avoid asking the question which can be quite pretentious about the way the characters can take over you when you write. But, I mean, there is... I certainly I do think that there can be a sense in which you get to know your characters. If you've found the voice of a character, there is a sense that you've been yeah, taken well, over. haunting can be very pleasurable, you know. If you're a writer looking for material, you're really grateful to be a bit haunted by whoever it is or whatever their voices are. But... Um, just going back to what we were just talking about, about atmosphere. Um, in my stories, the characters often have torches or lights or they're searching for something because it's psychic. And I found this really great quote from Emily Dickinson in her letters, which I put in the front of the book, and it's, um, I am out with lanterns searching for myself. And that's a bit like... That's what my haunting is. I'm going to dark places to answer the questions that haunt me. Mm. But usually having fun mysteriously. <laughs> yeah. I, I, in a way, maybe that's like the job of fiction is to introduce a story into your heads, if you hopefully read these books, so that you can kind of walk around those places, mm. Mary Creek, with the knowledge um, and the, the lives and the stories, you know, that, uh, that, that you've received from books. And that's actually what a lot of books have done for me, going back to the early 20th century Australian fiction that I read um, to write this book. So, so those books haunt me 
and they haunt haunt those okay so some of the most significant ones and there are little sort of ciphers in iris the the big smoke by darcy and island and that book's often forgotten in a curious contradiction of history he was ruth park's husband and he mostly wrote um what what were called westerns in the genre of westerns which actually sold to the united states but he wrote some really good urban fiction and that book uh is kind of written in a discontinuous narrative style the style that frank morehouse later became well known for so that's an important one and another reason and, and ruth park of course but those two writers also wrote with great ease at the time of a multicultural environment which we don't see in a lot of fiction it's been whitewashed so those two writers, Kylie Tennant as well, um, in particular Favot, which is set in Surrey Hills, Favot being the name of one of the first sort of landowners in the area and the, the remnant of that is Favot Street. And then there's another book by her called Tell Morning This, which is set in Mullamaloo and uh, more around the war. And that's what I'm going to explore, that area in, area, era in the next book. And... Christina Stead, Seven Poor Men of Sydney. Um, I probably would forget some in, in trying to compile a list like this. One but book that it reminded me of almost straight away was Dorothy Hewitt's book, Bobbin Up. I still haven't read that. Yeah. Uh, I I I'll have to. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the 1940s, but it's in the, the struggle land. It's in, in factories, isn't it? Factories yeah. and poor people. And it's in Surrey Hills. It's around. But is yeah. it in Sydney or is it Perth? No, no it's Sydney. Sydney. Okay, I have to Very read it. Distinctively. And there's The Dye House by Mina Calthorpe, which is set in a factory in um, McDonald Town in, I think, probably a bit later, the 1950s, and that's another really good book, which is reissued in text classics. Mm-hmm. Yay for text classics. Yeah. Yes. And was, what's interesting is that a lot of these, well, I'd say all of these writers were socialists, some of them card-carrying communists. Right. And personally, I don't think you can be a good fiction writer unless you're a socialist. <laughs> because, look, that's just based, like being base, like a basic humanist. And because most, most like quantitatively most people in whatever system, late-stage capitalism, feudalism, have been oppressed. And they're they're the stories that, you know, we really need to hear. So, anyway. Is there someone, are there people you want to talk about that have influenced, well, you kind of are aware they influenced the work or do you actually avoid reading fiction? No, I read continuously. It's one big research project, usually related to what what it is I'm writing or interested in. But um, different things for different stories. Um, But my childhood or my teenage favourites were Gothic stories. Um, Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination, I read those quite often. Mostly because it puts you straight into the first-person voice of someone who's crazy, and I just love that being a co-conspirator, it always draws me in. Um, and, you know, the other gothic classics, Daphne du Maurier, um, and um, I'm going to say Tegan Bennett-Daylight because I love everything she does, and she's been really helpful to me with my stories. Otherwise, I continuously read Australian fiction. I love your book. 
Oh, I love your book too. <laughs> and I love Sophie's book too. Yeah, and I love Sophie's, Sophie's book. Sophie's, this devastating fave is the best Australian novel I've read in years and I've read a lot. Thank you. Very <laughs> so make sure you buy that as well after the session. Um, since you have written short stories and, and Anne, and we're talking about them today, and Fiona, you have written in the past with Iris is, um, is the opposite of a short story. It's a kind of very, very long form fiction. Yeah. Do you want to talk, and you have written a novel, or I'd like to, you to maybe just both talk about different modes of storytelling and, and how you find them, like short story versus novel. I started off writing short stories and then one of them became my first novel and then I moved to novel writing and, and in fact, I just wrote my first short story in about 20-something years at the end of last year. I haven't published it yet, but I lost the craft and it's a really difficult craft and I wish I still could and I want to try and get it back. But... Um, in moving to novel writing, I, at the same time, I was developing my voice as a critic from, from the late 90s onwards, but I wasn't really focusing on that. I was exercising a lot of that craft as I um, moved into doing performance art and, and you know, I'm, I'm more of an autodidact than anything. So whilst I was in the visual arts and the performing arts world and writing about it, I was building up a skill and that kind of turned into non-fiction narrative with Strange Museums, my first book, which grew out of essays, which in turn grew out of uh, performance art criticism. And in the process of finding that more long-term non-fiction voice, it sort of enriched my fiction writing. And so in a way, I wasn't deliberately going into each genre until I really felt that I had an actual essay or an actual book and that's when I sort of applied myself and going back to the thing of reading once once you know what you're writing and sometimes it takes quite a few drafts or you have to throw out a lot of stuff quite a few months and sometimes years once you know I do tend to read quite deliberately towards that mm -hmm. and and too. and so I'm probably going to be going back to reading more short stories, and I, and I, this is Anne's book is brilliant. And um, when you when you find a good writer of that particular genre or craft, it does inspire you. So I do want to get back to writing short fiction, but I am also back to writing novels. I mean, this a book of essays of mine that came out required a lot of effort, and this is the only novel I've worked on in fifteen years. I mean, some people publish a novel every two years. So that mainly what I will be doing now is, is, is not performance art now, but really novels, um, short stories and essays. That's what I'm really focusing on now, well, I think. That's a small ambition, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know, and yeah, and I'm still writing art criticism to, to well, it doesn't really pay the rent, but um, well, it, it, it's something it that I enjoy and it does sort of, it, 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 feeds, it feeds me intellectually anyway. And talk about the difference between, like, why you ended up writing a short story collection having been worked on a novel and, and you, how you feel about the different forms. I think um, my idea of writing was that it would be a novel. Um, and so I just kept writing um, this story that mutated um, continuously. 
um, and I was actually just learning to write, you know, learning the difference between telling a story that's where you're consciously directing it to something that comes from a deeper place. Um, and that novel was maybe two novels. Um, like I would write a different middle, then I would write a different end, then I'd write a different beginning. You know, it was like one of those children's books where you swap around the heads in the class. <laughs> and basically I just wrote and wrote and wrote for seven years. Um, and, you know, maybe that will become something one day, but short stories were completely different. And I just loved the freedom of just being able to start in the middle of something. Um, no backstory, just explode out into whatever antics the characters were into, um, not justifying anything, not explaining anything, just um, just moving with uh, the energy that is, you know, a burning desire to do something, even if it's quite trivial by someone else's standards for the characters. It's uh, a, a focused moment of intensity and glee, you know, just to be out there. And maybe part of it's the glee that I felt not to have to be writing a novel, you know. <laughs> um, a lot of my favourite feminist writing, fiction, is in short form poems, short stories, novellas, and I'm wondering if you have a perspective on why those forms are used so often. They're quicker to write. <laughs> <laughs> well, just as opposed to long, epic novels. Well, Iris is an epic novel. It's extraordinary. I think, I think historically it's probably because women were taking care of children and women also... But, it, but even if they didn't have children to take care of, they might have actually had to write secretly for, you know, in shorter gaps of time. But, it, but even, you know, up until Alice Munro, that's what she was literally doing with, you know, kids crawling around her. So that might be one reason, Yeah. I consider my book to be feminist just because it's about women and girls, you know. Well, I, one of the questions that um, slipped, we ended up talking about reading, Fiona, I really did want to know about your, in a, your relationship between Iris, the, the, um, re, the, the real Iris, as much as there were records, and then how you kind of ended up fictionalising her or your kind of to relate to that haunting yeah, question. Yeah, ex exactly, because the first time I saw Iris was I saw this portrait in an ex exhibition. And um, it's a, actually, it's a good opportunity for me to tell you all this photograph was taken in 1941, so it's 10 years after this book takes place. And because I've spent so long with her, I feel that I'm capable of imagining what she might have looked like 10 years earlier. Nevertheless, that's what really got me, that penetrating gaze. And I was finishing Chemical Palace, my third book at that time. And I did go straight to the archives. I do tend to do that between books. I often go to the library, but um, I might just kind of drift net fish. And in this case, I had a specific thing I was looking for. And so I did uncover a lot of the um, pertinent material 20 years ago, including holding the bullets in my hand from one of the shootings that, that were in one of the evidence boxes out at the State Archives. Fantastic. She always had pretty crappy guns, though. They were pea rifles, which are guns, guns that were used to um, shoot rabbits, and there was a plague of rabbits across the whole continent at that time. So you would have learnt to shoot as a kid if you lived in the country as a pragmatic measure just to um, de-glamorise that context. 
But um, in, in having that evidence literally in my hands, I didn't really know what to do with it because I wasn't a historical novelist. And so, and I was at that time also moving into performance art and um, always having to do other jobs to make money. So I was haunted by Iris for a long time before I understood how to tell the story. I then went and did a doctoral thesis and that enabled me to complete the research in a really structured, rigorous way with somebody looking over my shoulder. And um, I wrote an exegesis and that's available online if anybody's interested in the, you know, the facts behind the story. Um, and I chose to set the novel in the time frame that I thought was, I mean, one of my uh, initiating questions was, um, well, what is a criminal in, in a time when there was the white Australia policy, uh, homosexuality was illegal. I mean, the, this, is a, this is a white supremacist colony founded not only on the, the supremacy of whiteness, but within that, the hierarchy of Europe, which is English and Scandinavian countries, and then you know Irish, and then Southern Europe, and then down and down through Asia and Africa to Indigenous Australia. This terrible, which still exists, and we're trying to break down. But you know what? What would be a criminal in that context, as well as everything that we've discussed about the place of women? And that time frame of 1932 to 37 was when Iris was essentially criminalised. It's when she committed the things that she became most notorious for, actually, bar some things that happened in the late 40s. And I wanted to really challenge, I mean, um, what... And also sort of rescue her from that ignominy and by extension and by implication look at um, how other people are treated. I mean, I'm not writing, obviously, from a perspective of non-white people, but I have to observe that in that teeming social portrait. It's really necessary for me to observe that because I'm implicated in that. Um, and I, I guess I, what I've come up with is something which is a, a work of my imagination, but it was, it's very much pinned by those, the public things that are on the public record in as much as I've passed them, because I do want to be historically responsible, so. In that day, it really struck me that um, you could be arrested for busking, um, but you could also be arrested for having no money, and I thought that one's really dropped off the radar. Well, vagrancy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, because, hey, he's got cash these days, Paul. I do. I live in Redfern, but... No um, visible means of support. And yeah. the vagrancy law, which is, yeah, that's one of the laws. There are two, the consorting and the vagrancy laws, which were, and they're very much used to punish poor people. That is being applied, of course, to homeless people, and their, their numbers are growing every day. We've got such a crisis now. So, so they are. They're, they're, they're there to police the disadvantaged, and, yeah. And, and I wanted to know if you, I mean... If you did research in that kind of sense, or whether you just say with the Mary Creek story, but there are other stories where this is probably relevant, or did you draw from your own memory of kind of events or...? Um, well, um, I love research. I worked as a librarian for 25 years and did medical research. It, and research is really soothing to me. And writing the story, The Mary Creek, was really scary. I could only write a paragraph at a time, you know, and then I'd have to go and calm myself by doing something else. But I ended up, like, studying 
geology and earth sciences and archaeology and the strata of the river. And that's where I would retreat when the writing got difficult. I'd, I'd figure out, yeah, well, the basalt is over sandstone and that's over clay and that's over artefacts. So you'd engage with the landscape in that kind of deep yeah, way. Yeah, imagine the river. And then I would look at art books um, and see um, pictures of Ophelia floating in a river and bring that into the story. Um, and so between the art books and the geology, I found a way to write the story. But it was mostly to comfort myself uh, with, with science and art in order to draw really deeply on something that was terrifying. Mm. You two have both been amazing um, in praise of Fiona and Anne. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.